0: Our scripture reading this morning is Psalms 127 and 128, two psalms back to back, 127 and 128, Psalms 127, 128, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Well, every once in a while, one of you will ask me, How long does it take to write a sermon? And the answer to that question is always varied and for a good number of reasons. But if you were to ask me how long I've been working on a sermon on Psalms 127 and 128, I would say something like 30 years. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong impression here. I don't want to set up some kind of great expectation that this will be The best sermon you've ever heard simply because I've been working on it for so long. But when I say I've been working on this sermon for nearly 30 years, I mean that I have been meditating on and trying to make sense of these two psalms for at least that long. And I'll tell you why a little later. If you're visiting with us today, welcome. We're working our way through a sermon series Uh, exploring Bible verses often misunderstood and therefore misapplied. A sermon series I've been calling, You Keep Using That Verse. I do not think it means what you think it means. Psalms 127 and 128 belong in this category. As you can imagine, both psalms, especially those parts with their imagery of fruitfulness, are often cited, for example, against abortion or in favor of right to life. Uh, They are sometimes cited as a kind of encouragement or even a command to Christian families to have many children, And sometimes they're used as a kind of manly, self-congratulatory, semi-pious, chest-thumping when one's wife gives birth to a child, especially if it's a boy, whether it's the first or the tenth. In each of these cases, I do not think these psalms mean what you think they mean. As always, a key to our proper understanding of any uh, verse or text that is, that is misused and misapplied or misunderstood is to look at the context, and that's where we begin today. And then, of course, to look at these texts in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ. To get to the context, we really need to go all the way back to the beginning. We remember Adam and Eve were placed in the beautiful garden And they were given a command to fill the earth and to subdue it. And we know now that the temple was a kind of, uh, sorry, the garden was a kind of temple on earth. And now we understand that Adam and Eve were to produce and to raise fellow image bearers who would bring glory to God through their faithful obedience and their worship of their creator. That was their purpose. Adam and Eve were to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, and to recreate image bearers as they bore the image of the God who made them, image bearers who would then bear image bearers all the way down, who would worship their creator, the great God. And So you know, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they they had the curses of God applied to them, curses that included this, banishment from the garden... And the promise that producing children would be painful and that producing crops would be a perpetual struggle. And so, of course, death and dysfunction began to reign and to rule over the creation. They'd been placed in a land with a promise to produce much seed and now they are banished from the land and the production of people and even crops from the land is going to be painful, and it is going to be a struggle. And some of the manifestations of that curse of death and dysfunctionality include miscarriages, the deaths of children in infancy, the deaths of mothers in childbirth, the deaths of husbands before they become fathers, the perpetual childlessness of widows. And then you fast forward a little bit and you remember that the same command came to Noah when he comes out of the ark after uh, the land had been purified from sin and cleansed of all other people who had been the source of so much sin. And it's like the ark gives birth in its own way to every form of new life to repopulate this earth. And then a little while later, God comes to Abraham, and he chooses him. And what does he promise him? He promises him land and seed. He says the land of Canaan, a land you don't even know about, but this land is going to be yours. And you are going to have more offspring than you can count. They're going to be like the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore. And then you remember the 12 sons are taken down into Egypt. And we learn in the opening pages of Exodus that uh, Israel in Egypt, in its slavery, is fruitful. Increases greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. So the seed promise, a promise of an abundant population, is being fulfilled, but the land promise is not they're in the wrong land, they're in Egypt. And so God orchestrates the Exodus. Now, fast forward to the people gathered at the threshold of the promised land. And they hear this blessing from God through Moses that when they enter, each family is going to receive as an inheritance, as a heritage, a piece of the land. And the land would be divided and subdivided and distributed and given to each tribe and then clan and then family. And that piece of land would be held in perpetuity by that family, though always still of course understood to be owned by the Lord. The military strategy of God's people as they come to the land by God's design and with His blessing is there to wipe away all of God's enemies from the land. And God was going to start over with them. He was going to repopulate the land with them and with their descendants who will enjoy the bounty of the land, including the harvesting of crops they didn't plant, the living in houses they did not build, the drinking from wells they did not dig. But the Lord is going to give to them the bounty of that land to sustain them and to please them that they might flourish and multiply." And as part of God's covenant arrangement with Israel, it was uh, true that He says, if they remain faithful to Him, He will continue to bless them. And He will bless them with abundance and fruitfulness. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses says, "'Know therefore that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and to keep his commandments to a thousand generations." And then Moses, God through Moses goes on, "...because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, Yahweh your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love he swore, swore to your fathers." In other words, God had made this promise to Abraham, but He's renewing that promise with every subsequent generation with the same set of blessings and curses attached that obedience produces blessings and disobedience produces curses. And He says this, He, Yahweh, will love you, will bless you, will multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground your grain, your wine, your oil. He will increase your herds, the young of your flock, in the land he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. And then listen to this, he says, There shall not be male or female barren among you or your livestock. Well, with that in mind and in our heads now, look with me at Psalm 127, 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. The language of heritage and reward are built into the promises of God's covenant blessings. It's interesting that ordinarily the Lord speaks of the nation of Israel as his heritage, his inheritance, his treasured possession, his concern to perpetuate in the expressed way of fulfilling his promises. The Lord wants children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren for himself because they're worshippers, image bearers. So again, it's interesting the Lord usually refers to or the, when you see the word heritage it's usually applied to God's people as they belong to God. Just as one little illustration and this is almost for free because it could be another sermon in this series. The famously misused Psalm thirty-three, twelve. You usually only hear the first half of that verse. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Which makes it sound like a nation that may or may not have chosen God to be its Lord is going to be blessed. But if you were to hear the second half of that couplet, the mistake would get fixed. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. See, it's not that the people have chosen God, but that God has chosen them. And who has God chosen as a nation but Israel? A selection and a favor he has not given to any other geopolitical nation since. The nation is God's heritage, and now God says, children are a heritage from the Lord. Well, the second challenge to the understanding, or the usual understanding of Psalm 127 is that both in verses 3 and 4, the word children in your English Bibles is actually sons, male descendants. And it's interesting if you step back for a moment and reread Psalm 127 and 128 and you realize the promises and the blessings here are given to the man. And the woman is only seen in Psalms 127 and 128 in terms of her ability to produce a lot of children. The word children here is sons. And the reason this is important is because sons in the Old Testament, what do they do? They maintain the family line. And as they maintain the family line, they guarantee that the land given to that family stays in the family. The land promised to the progenitor through his sons stays in the family. And an Old Testament believer has his identity wrapped up in his place in the land and hopefully that that land is a productive plot and that he can have a son-producing wife or preferably even multiple sons. And so as the, sun, as, the, as the psalm compares sons to arrows, it's probably saying a couple of things. Defensively, arrows provide protection from being wiped out. But offensively, arrows are shot down the road, as it were, that they have a a life beyond the archer's release of them or of their sitting in the quiver. And to compare a wife to a fruitful vine means she produces sons to sustain the family in the present but also to provide for a continuing of the family line. To compare sons to olive shoots, for example, is not far from the imagery in Isaiah 11, you said, of of, of, of the stump of Jesse and a, a shoot coming out of that that is the stump is an old man. Nearly done, but a new growth shoots up and that new son perpetuates and sustains the family name and line and provides hope for the future. You see, in other words, in Psalms, sons and sons' sons mean the guarantee, at least in the near future, of a kind of social and territorial immortality. You might even say sons and the ability to see sons' sons not only is evidence of long life, which itself is part of the reward, but the sons' sons continue that life. It's almost... Like a picture, it is a picture of eternal life. The land will stay in the family. The family name will not die out. More image bearers will come and will fill that land. And in their obedience to God will worship the God who made them and who redeemed them and who planted them. So again, there are Christians today who use Psalm 127 and 128 to, what, uh, to promote what might best be called unbridled procreation. As if it is their job, single-handedly, to fulfill God's purpose and design to fill the earth. Groups like these get this right. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Again, in a series of sermons where part of the concern is to be corrective, you need to sometimes say, but I'm not saying that. Children are a blessing from the Lord. You don't always see them that way. I understand that, but they're a blessing from the Lord. To say Jesus is king, sovereign with power over all things, is also to acknowledge that our God and Father creates life and ultimately controls reproduction. But notice, closely, uh, notice how closely in these two psalms the connection is made between God's blessings and fruitfulness. Notice that neither uh, 127 or 128 are commands. They're not imperatives. Go and do this. So the ability to have many children in Psalms 127 and 120 is surely a sign of God's blessings in the context of the Old Testament and His purposes for His nation of Israel. And correspondingly, though not always expressed explicitly in our age, infertility then must be a sign of God's curse. You see, if we want to appropriate Psalms 127 and 128 and say children are a a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward, and we want to think of children as being rewards for some obedience, then the implication is if there are no children, there must be some disobedience. So you can only imagine the angst and the distress Singles and widows and infertile couples experience in a world of interpreting Psalms 127 and 128 that way. You see, because in addition to not having the desires of their heart met, or not met rather, with children, they have the added burden of having to imagine or having others imagine for them. They must have sinned in some way possibly secret, but probably spectacular way because clearly the Lord is cursing them. You follow that line of logic, don't you? Now I'm going to tell you why it's been 30 years since I've been working on this sermon. A few years ago, Diana and I were in Canada on Mother's Day. And we did what we often do. We worshiped at a church that we used to be a part of and it's in a Dutch Reformed tradition where there are large families and many babies. This church has baptisms almost every Sunday or announcements of new pregnancies or births every Sunday. It is absolutely teeming with little kids. And just to give you a little picture here, this church is about four to five times the size of Trinity. Very large church, and their nursery staff each Sunday is made up of about a dozen people, moms and daughters, caring for all their children. The day we were there uh, was a day in recognition of Mother's Day. Uh, the sermon and the congregational prayer that day were teeming with references to the promises and the blessings of many children, and there were as many citations of Psalms 127 and 28 as there were kids in the building. Just filled with references to fruitful vines, and olive shoots, and arrows, and quivers, and blessings, and rewards. After the sermon was over, I, uh, because it's a Dutch church, they have great coffee, so I made my way over to the coffee line. <laughs> and as I was there, a young woman approached me, and she was visibly but quietly weeping. Now it turns out I had met her roughly 10 years earlier when she was in her mid-teens, and Diane and I were in our mid-20s. But as she approached me, I didn't recognize her, and she clearly knew me, and she clearly remembered more about me than I did about her. She made a beeline to me with tears in her eyes because she remembered a conversation we'd had 10 years earlier that I had long forgotten. Tears pouring down her face. Her first words to me were, How do you and Diana do it? And I was confused. I said, Do what? Do what? And she said, how do you and Diana make it through a day and a service like today? I was entirely caught off guard. I still didn't know what she was really talking about. But her pain was so visible and palpable, I pointed to the chairs along the side of the room and I said, let's go and we'll talk. Well, it turned out she and her husband had been married several years uh, earlier and they were not able to have children. And she remembered from a conversation Diana and I had had with a small group of people of which she was a part and which I didn't remember where we had shared our struggle with infertility. And she lived in this world. We were long gone, but she continued to live in this world. She worshipped in a world where Psalms 127 and 128 were chronically misunderstood and misapplied. Remember I said I've been working on this sermon for 30 years When Diane and I were dating We asked all the usual questions people ask when they're dating Like, how many kids are you, would you like to have? And we made a whole bunch of assumptions About God's plan for our lives I was going to become a lawyer We were going to be really, really rich We were going to live in a large house We were going to have a white picket fence We were going to have at least one dog And we were going to have a minivan <laughs> And the reason we were going to have a minivan Was because we were going to have at least five children Well, no, 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 and no. I looked at this young woman, and I asked her this question. I said, how many of the references in today's sermon or in the prayer relating to the Lord's blessings of many genetically related children of large families of fruitful wives, how many of those quotations came from the New Testament Not one. In other words, and I've had a couple of conversations with her since and her husband. I said, let's think together about what the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ has to do with our understanding of these expressions of God's promises of productivity and fecundity. Are children a blessing from the Lord? You bet. Does the Lord control human reproductive systems? No question. Does the Lord value life beginning from conception without a doubt? Should Christians care about laws limiting access to abortion? Of course. But does fruitfulness and fecundity necessarily indicate God's blessing? And are barrenness and infertility a sure sign of God's curse? Apply to individual Christians in a new covenant era. Not so fast. You see, it's not as easy now to read God's blessings off of agricultural or neonatal productivity. To be sure, barrenness and infertility are signs of a fallen, broken world, as are deaths of infants in infancy or deaths of men before they're able to have children. And in some sense, all this was already true in the Old Testament. Think of the many times the Lord chose to use his power and his grace to display those in bringing about life through those who were previously unable to bear children, those who defied every expectation of becoming pregnant. Those people would have assumed must be living in some kind of sin because they couldn't have children. Think of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, and, of course, of Mary, the mother of our Lord. But notice how the promises of God to Abraham and the command given to Adam and then to Noah, the commands to fill the earth and subdue it, the promises given to Abraham that he's going to give them seed and a land, how those are reshaped and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. No, we know now God's primary purposes of land and seed are focused not no, no longer in the nation of Israel, in that little geopolitical slice of land in the Middle East, but God's blessings are poured out onto the church in its worldwide, global, international, multilingual growth. In other words, the Lord is growing his people uh, not only through the birth of covenant children for which we give thanks and which you will see on display today. Not a son, but she'll do. Notice the Lord is growing his kingdom in a global, international, multilingual way. He does that through the birth of a covenant child. But he's now concerned with his people growing in number through the addition of others who were not part of the original tribe. From other nations, from other tribes, from other tongues, from other languages. And so the promise of land and agricultural abundance in the Old Testament, we're not, they're not spiritualized away for us, but they point forward to the abundance and the enjoyment of new heavens and new earth at Christ's return. And guess what? A new heavens and a new earth that will be populated by redeemed image bearers worshiping God. They won't all be from one country. They won't all be the same color or speak the same language. And so as Christians, here's a little point of application, and this might hurt a couple of us. As Christians, we do not find our ultimate identity, our ultimate joy, our ultimate delight in the fact we are moms and dads or even grandmas and grandpas. Nor do the rest of you base your fundamental identity on the fact you are not moms or dads or grandmas or grandpas. Nor is your life, your significance devalued in Christ because you imagine or wish you might be or would be a mom or a dad or a grandma or grandpa. Or if even worse, you somehow imagine the reason you're not is because you must have sinned in some specific way and God's punishing you. We find our ultimate joy, our ultimate identity, our ultimate delight in Jesus Christ, who is the source and fountain of all life and all productivity. Jesus is the ultimate seed, the ultimate son, the king who sits on and perpetuates David's throne, who has expanded the borders, will expand the borders, will extinguish and eliminate all enemies or turn them into friends. In Christ, we have life at immortality in the gospel. And so we remind ourselves Jesus is God, God's own revelation to us in his Son. And that means Jesus stands before us and recites the Psalms 127 and 128. And he can say these Psalms point to him. They are fulfilled in him. In other words, Jesus is the man who sits at the head of the table and looks out. And he looks out at this table filled with celebrants. In a new heavens and a new earth, a table that extends forever really because there are numberless descendants. Jesus is the one whose quiver is full of arrows, whose children are like olive shoots around his table. And Jesus is the one who says in Hebrews Chapter 2, as he looks out, says to his father, Behold, here I am, and the children you have given me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the comfort and encouragement of a corrected way of thinking through Psalms 127 and 128. Thank you for the challenge before us to increase in number and to multiply disciples and worshipers Through our gospel proclamation, thank you that there are those who continue to raise up covenant children to carry on and to add to the number. Father, thank you for giving comfort and encouragement to those who have experienced a great deal of pain as they've read these or had them read to them in ways that are no longer true. Receive our thanks as we appropriate these promises and blessings for ourselves as we see you at work in accomplishing your purposes in faithfulness, in your faithfulness and commitment to your covenant promises, now in Jesus Christ. Receive our thanks, hear our prayer we offered in Jesus' name and God's people say together, Amen.